One of the big things that people have to uh, wrestle through a little bit uh, with Genesis 1 is the relationship it has with uh, other subjects like science. Maybe you had an experience like I did growing up in high school where you took a, a science class, I think this one was uh, uh, chemistry, but and I went to a really small like uh, school in the middle of a cornfield. It had like 50 kids in it in my class, and it was a small school. So he taught a lot of different subjects. Uh, this particular teacher on science, and I remember this one time that it was one of those times that I I uh, got detention. Uh, but uh, this is the time that he was talking about science, and it was a great a great lecture and all that sort of thing. And then he had this phrase where he was really putting science kind of on the pedestal above all other subjects and he said this phrase that all you need is science. Like you don't need even need, he started kind of throwing all the other subjects under the bus. You don't need all that other stuff, literature and, 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 and grammar and, and, and all those other, other types of uh, history. You don't, you don't need that. All you really need to be able to understand the world and life is science. And so I raised my hand and he wasn't calling on me so I just blurted out, uh, you can't communicate about science without language and he dismissed me from class. Now, there's more history between he and I other than that uh, one phrase, but I was skeptical of his claim about, uh, about all that you need is science, and I know that some that uh, really have uh, struggled through their own faith is also wondering, like, well, that's what I've heard, and how do you uh, look at a book like Genesis in light of that type of experience that we grow up with uh, often? Sometimes people just think that it's hard to read Genesis 1 because there's a conflict between your faith and the creation story and science, that they are in conflict, that they are irreconcilable. Uh, and one of the things I actually try to do in parenting, my kids are, are starting to uh, get to the age that they write papers, and there's this particular teacher that has them each year uh, write a paper about uh, a scientist. And I always have them pick uh, some type of scientist from history who also happens to be a Christian to show that for a lot of uh, human history, including not only scientists uh, of history, but also scientists currently, have uh, no conflict with that. And so I have them write a paper about somebody uh, who is a prominent scientist that does not have a conflict with that. So some people resolve it then by saying, well, there's no conflict, but like science and faith are so distinct that they're just in contrast, that they're totally different realms of knowledge that have no intersection, and it's kind of just like two rails that, that, that they just never cross, that you just don't, you just don't, uh, you only dabble in one or the other, but not both, and you don't really ask questions to reconcile them. And it kind of puts them in competition, and I think also that's a, a really... Um, just a more shallow way of learning things in general because one of the things that's so fun about learning different subjects is how they enrich one another. And that's why I want to set up this sermon on Genesis 1 um, and especially some of these opening chapters in Genesis to show you that I think there's a convergence between faith and other realms of knowledge like science, that they are both distinct and they're asking and answering different questions, but they still interact in a fruitful way. Uh, one of the readers I, I've read that has kind of highlighted this is a, a professor from Georgetown. His name is John uh, Hott, and he talks about uh, an approach to faith and science that looks at it as like layers of a cake, uh, layers of, of knowledge that, that when you study different subjects like science and history and theology, that there's distinctiveness between them. They're different subjects, but when you understand your world through 
all different kinds of subjects, then it actually enlarges your knowledge and appreciation for everything that's around you. So let me give you an example of what that looks like, okay? Let me use uh, one of my favorite things to use as an illustration, coffee. Uh, let's ask the question, how did coffee come into existence? All right, let's ask that question, all right? How, where, did, where did it come from? So one layer of knowledge could say, well, coffee exists because hot water passed through some roasted coffee beans that are ground, and that hot water extracted the flavorful materials through a filter and into a coffee pot and then into my belly, right? That's one explanation of where did this coffee come from. Another layer you could add to uh, understanding of where coffee comes from is you could say, well, the coffee exists because my roommate uh, brewed the coffee. That's where it came from. It's like the historic angle. Well, this is what happened in history. This is where coffee came from. Another layer you could add to it is you could say coffee exists because my roommate is addicted to it. You know, maybe more of like a psychological, biological angle where it's just like, well, yeah, he makes coffee every day. Like he can't uh, survive as a human being without it, right? That's another layer of where did the coffee come from. Or let's add a theological layer. Layer four would be something like this. The coffee exists because God not only created coffee beans, but human beings who are capable of processing his creation and arranging it in such a way that it leads to the enjoyment of coffee as a good gift from God to be enjoyed for his glory. Amen, church? All right, so there you go, right? So those are different approaches that you have to one different type of subject. And this is one of the things that I want to take into Genesis to see how Genesis enlarges our worldview that adds to the things that we already know about history and ourselves and even the domain of science and, and, and studying what some historic, uh, maybe folks that studied this in the past have said that this is natural theology, the study of how God created all things. And Genesis adds another layer to our rich understanding of ourselves and the world because it's mainly about God. Not only in Genesis 1 is it about God, but it's about God through the whole book, the God who creates not only a world, but calls a people to himself through a man named Abraham. It's the God who shines light in the darkness and brings meaning and purpose and glory into our world. This is the God who makes good, even though human beings constantly try to distort God's creation and moral order, and they create evil and make evil. What we intend for evil, God intends for good, and he's very involved in not only making the world, but redeeming the world and being staying, staying involved in the world. And that's what Genesis 1 is all about. And so now we start with uh, not only Genesis 1, but Genesis as a book is all about. So now we begin with Genesis 1. And in this particular sermon, kind of the first part that I'm going to preach on Genesis 1, we're going to focus mainly on, I don't know, like day one to six and a half, about the time that it, he gets right to uh, creating humanity. Uh, again, I'm going to do a second part that will really go into that second half of Genesis. But here I want to do a couple different things. I want to show a framework for interpreting Genesis 1 that really emphasizes uh, the theology that the, the book, this book and this chapter of the Bible is trying to give us, and then from that framework show you the essentials that Christians believe that flow out of that framework of understanding Genesis 1. So let's start with the framework itself. Now, does cr the creation account give some type of account for origins? Yes, it does. Does the creation account give an account of origins in the categories that we have of modern science? No, it does not. 
In short, both Genesis 1 and the theme of creation throughout the book of the, or the, 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 book of the Bible is more concerned with the why and the who of creation, like who did it and why did he do it, than the mechanics of the how. And another thing that's helpful is not only understanding the main purpose of Scripture is to declare and show us the glory of God, but also it's helpful to understand who the original audience is. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. And, and, and the, there was an original audience uh, that was very different than us. And we often want to fix the creation narrative to make it into something that was written for our modern-day framework, but we have to keep in mind that the ancient community, the ancient uh, audience that would have originally heard the creation story doesn't have our categories, and so we have to think about it from their perspective a little bit. For example, uh, for the ancient community, they would have not thought so much about uh, scientific categories, but they would have thought about maybe other creation myths, other religions, or other accounts of creation when they heard this Genesis 1 story. And this Genesis 1 story is that. It's a story that, that it's written in such a distinct way that, that it's not written to be a myth. The, the, the original author is saying to the, the listener that this is something that's real, that happened, and it says something about a real God and not a, not a myth. But they would have also thought about those other myths and how it's so uniquely different than those other creation myths. For example, I'll give you a couple examples. In Genesis 1, there are no other gods. There's just one God. There's only one God. There's no sun god or moon god or sea god. In fact, there's just one God who created the sun and the moon and the sea. This is a very stark contrast with other creation myths of the time. And the, uh, the original audience would have picked up on this. Also, the creation of humankind is very different in Genesis 1 than any other creation myth. Humankind is made in creation 1 to serve as stewards who are made in God's image. Other accounts, other creation myths, have human beings being created out of conflict between the gods, and they're sometimes created to not be his, his, his co-workers and stewards in creation, but to be his slaves. Or other times, human beings come because of erotic encounters between the gods. Here we have these examples to show you how utterly distinct and unique that the creation story is about God because he is utterly unique and glorious and there is no others, other like him. In addition, some of the uh, older theologians that uh, were around before uh, the scientific revolution have a good, some good guidance on us for reading this as well. For exa example, the great reformer John Calvin believed that one of the ways to read Genesis 1 and even all of Scripture is to remind yourself that God often accommodates himself when he reveals himself to us. He has infinite knowledge and categories, and we are finite and limited, so he doesn't communicate us to us in such a way that we, it goes over our heads, because he could easily do that, but he accommodates himself to us. Kelvin wrote, for example, quote, it is, it is necessary for God to descend according to our capacity in order to make us sense his presence with us. This is like uh, trying to explain any type of maybe complicated subject uh, to somebody that you're tutoring or maybe you're a parent to a kid, that you might have a knowledge base that's much uh, more broad and deep, but you have to accommodate to where their categories are at that moment. Let me give you an example from Genesis 1 as to what I mean by that. Genesis 1, 6 through 7 says, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. 
So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. The water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, some people get tripped up. How is there a sea above us? There's not a sea above us. There's sea in the sea, but above us is, is sky. So what is happening here? And, and, and Calvin and other theologians would just point out that it's not saying that there was in this moment of creation a literal sea, but it's again, God is accommodating our categories so that we can uh, understand this grand part of creation and the theology that happened in it. Uh, from our perspective, because from our perspective, there's like sea and lakes, but also it rains. And there's also, it feels like there's a sea above when it rains. So it's accommodating human perspective to talk about how, uh, how not only how God created, but the why and the who of our creator. Now, before I get into the essentials of creation, the second half of the sermon, I want to just note here that Christians throughout the centuries, of course, have different opinions about a lot of different things about the doctrine of creation and how to interpret Genesis 1. And there's differences al along the lines of, like, how long did it take God to do this, the timing of it, the interpretation of the details. And one thing I want to make clear, obviously I'm going to offer my uh, interpretation of it. I have to, to make some decisions to be able to even preach a sermon like this. But one thing that's, that's always good to note is that it's okay to have differences about how to read something like Genesis 1 the details that stick out and that are important to you. One of the things I love about uh, the Christian faith is we have unity around some lots of big essentials when it comes to the Christian faith or doctrines like creation, but then there's always this diversity of opinion on some of the details, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think it's just a wonderful thing that a lot of Christians think so deeply about these things that those details matter as you ponder the deep things of God. But what I want to show you now from the rest of Genesis 1 is some of the big essentials that even outside of the diversity that we might have in different details of interpreting Genesis 1, these are ones that Christians across the ages agree about. Essential number one of the doctrine of creation, that God is the creator of all things out of nothing. Genesis 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In verse 1, that phrase, heaven and earth, is Scripture's way of saying everything. God created everything. In the beginning, before there was anything, God created everything, and he created everything out of nothing. And verse 1 is simply stating what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter of Genesis 1. And then you get to verse 2, and that's one of the more curious verses in this whole passage. How is there earth and waters when God hasn't created the land and the sea yet? Where did that come from? And some understand verse 1 is saying God created everything, and then in verse 2 he's starting to kind of bring purpose and ordering to uh, the things that he made. Another take, which is the one I understand, is that the, this language of, of, of formless and empty and the surface of the deep is, is an ancient way of describing nothingness, that nothing existed yet. It's describing the non-existence in a way that a reader can understand. So formless and empty is an ancient way of saying unordered and uninhabited. There's nothing and there's no order. 
And the surface of the deep is uh, describing a deep abyss, which is kind of an ancient way of saying this is non-reality. There's nothing before God says that let there be something. I mean, the picture of that, even the surface of the deep, it's just such a fascinating uh, kind of feeling that, the, the, that Genesis 1 wants you to have. Like, just picture being in the middle of the ocean by yourself in the dark on a very cloudy day that you can't even see stars and the moon above you. It's just dark, and it's moving, and it's chaotic, and there feels like there's nothing, and there's order, and it's lonely, and there's nothing but darkness and chaos and loneliness. And then when, when there was nothing, God who was there says, let there be something. And you have the Spirit of God that is there in the nothingness. God is a spirit. He's a infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being. God always has existed and always will existed and always will exist, and so he's there. He has, he has no beginning and no end. He is who he is, and into the nothingness God speaks. Into the darkness God says in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And God's word commands and things happen. Piercing the darkness of nothing is the light and the glory of God. So that's the first essential, that God is creator of all things out of nothing. Essential number two, God created with order and purpose. This is one of the things that even the way that creation, the creation narrative, the creation story of Genesis 1 is told, screams that God created with purpose and order and intentionality. There's a structure here. One of the things you'll notice in days 1 through 3, for example, is that God is forming different things about our creation, that he's bringing into existence light and time in day 1, and day 2 it's sky and sea, and day 3 it's land and plants. But then parallel with that, uh, with day one, two, and three, God fills those areas of creation with life and, and flourishing. So after, in day four, it contrasts with day one, where there's light and time, with, with the sun and the moon and the stars in day four that, that fill uh, light and time. And then day five, God creates the birds and the fish that, that fill the sky and the sea that he created in day two. And then day three, again, was land and plants. But then in day six, you have animals and mankind that are filling those spaces with life and his image as well. And then you get to day seven where God rests. And the theological meaning there being not that God was tired and he needed to take a nap, but God was finished with his work of creation. And now he rests like, like, like God who comes down to the temple that he created to be his dwelling place with his people. And that's how the structuring of, of, and the framework of, of, of creation is told in Genesis 1. I won't get into too many details about this part of the structure too, but even the way that words and phrases are used in Genesis, it's sometimes lost in the translations into English, but there's like phrases that are intentionally seven Hebrew words, and this, this like pattern of like the whole creation narrative is told into the, the framework of seven days, and some of the phrases are down to seven words. It's screaming that there's purpose and order to how God does things and how he formed his creation. So in light of that, I want to read uh, the bulk of this, this passage again, and I want you to see how God created and forms all the things in days one to three 
and also then fills those areas in days uh, four to six. So you can just appreciate the orderliness and purpose, purposefulness of how the creation narrative uh, reads. And the other thing to keep an eye on, because this will get us to the, the third essential, is repeated phrases when I read these verses. Note the things that, then the phrases that, that the, the creation story continues to use over and over and over again. So in days one to three, God is formed in a place. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters, he called them sea, and he saw that it was good. Then God said, let, us, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetations, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So the God forms in those three days. And now, notice now in these next days that I read that he's filling those places. Keep, keep your ear open to the repeated phrases in these verses, by the way. And God said... Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. And God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image. More on verse 26, of course, in a couple Sundays. Do you see the repetition of, of phrases and also just how it's ordered in such a way that the whole way that the creation story is told screams that God created with order and purposefulness, 
that there's a way that he has made things to be good and for his glory when they are put in the proper place in the peaceful way that God has created all things. That's one of the big emphasis that God created with order and purpose that has implications and even the way that, that, that the Christian scriptures start to talk about even uh, big themes like justice and our, our understanding of sin come from this idea that God created with order but we make things to be crooked, for example. Orderliness and things according to their kind and the boundaries that God has is a big theme in the scriptures to the degree that it's one of those things that when you mix things together, that that's one of the reasons that, that, that even Old Testament uh, historically understood some things to be unclean or, 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 or unfit in uh, certain rituals. It's kind of like, uh, just to maybe give a silly example of what this looks like, right? What God is doing in creation in his purposefulness and his intention with his order. Uh, we had a Thanksgiving potluck uh, yesterday, and uh, it, was, it was wonderful. We, a lot of you showed up to that. And one of the things I'm encouraged about, by the way, as a pastor, is it's not only encouraging to see this church's uh, growth in Christ over the years, but your, your potluck game has gotten better, too, I must say. Like, I think when we first started at Trinity City Church, I'd give you maybe like a C, C-, minus. Uh, but yesterday, I was like a good, good A minus, just a little bit more room for improvement, I think. But we're we're there. Like we got a really good potluck game, and I'm very, very impressed. One of the things that somebody brought in, this is the first time that anybody has brought this to um, to a potluck, and hopefully now, especially now that I'm talking about it, every year we'll have this dish. But somebody brought the dish uh, called a Snicker salad. You ever heard of a Snicker salad? What an awesome name for something, right? It's just like, it's like you look at the, you know what, if you don't know what a snicker salad is, it's cut up pieces of Snickers, like whipped cream, and it's got fruit in it too, like grapes, right? And we, we call it a salad. And I love that it's called a salad. Like, that's not a salad. Like, so much so that the, the folks that brought it said that somebody wanted to put it on the dessert table, and they're like, no, it's a salad, it belongs here, it stays, right? <laughs> It's one of those things you just don't know what to do with that. Like, yeah, it's got fruit in it, but it's got cut-up Snickers, and it's got whipped cream. It's just like it breaks all the categories. So if, like, it, it, one of the points, it seems, of, like, like this uh, narrative in, in Genesis is, like, if God came and the formless and the void and all that stuff was a Snicker salad, he'd be like, well, this doesn't belong together. We'll put the Snickers and the whipped cream at the dessert table, and we'll keep this fruit salad here. And then that makes, that makes things orderly and with purpose. And that's some, one of the ways to maybe think about what's happening in the way that the creation narrative unfolds. It unfolds with rich theological meaning that screams that God created everything and he did so with order and purpose as well. Essential three, God pronounced his creation good or very good. As I read those verses, I wanted you to listen to repeated phrases. Did you hear some of the ones that stuck out? And God said, and God said, let there be, and, and, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. These, these phrases keep repeating itself. One of the theologians I read talks about the, the way that, 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 that speech operates in the creation story, that, that God is saying uh, and pronouncing things and commanding it to be so and creating distinction, and then he reports what he did. He said, and God made all these things, and every uh, uh, after the report, every day God saw that it was good. That's God's evaluation of his creation, that it is good. It was very good. That's what we read in verse 31. God saw all that he made, 
and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Our creation and our existence is good. Our being is good. We're meant to be here. Creation is good. It's created to be a reflection of God's glory and a revelation to us about who He is. And it makes sense as creation and and Genesis starts to unfold why sin is so disruptive and so off because God created all things to be good and it is good. And we realize that, that something is wrong with God's good creation, but in the beginning it was not so. That we are created in His image. We are very good. And our creation around us is good. This is meant to be. And we are meant to exist. And we exist to see and savor God, who is the very good God behind this creation. Essential number four. God is the sovereign ruler of all creation, which by His personal and particular providence, He sustains. God not only creates in Genesis 1, but he sustains his creation. He's involved in his creation. Uh, Other passages of Scripture, for example, in Psalm 104, celebrate this, this, this fact that comes from Genesis 1. This is Psalm 104, 10 through 15. God makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. This is God being celebrated not only as creator, but the creator who continues to be involved in his creation, uh, providing and sustaining for his creation. And even Hebrews 1.3 talks about how the Son of God, also because of his divine nature, sustains all of creation by, the, the, by his powerful Word. God is still involved in creation. The way that Christians think about the created order is not that God created it and now he wound it up like a top and now it's going and he's uninvolved. That our very existence here, moment by moment and day to day, our existence and the existence of our world around us is because God says not only let there be, but let it continue to be. Let us continue to exist because our very being is still sustained by his powerful word. The fifth and final essential, that God as creator is a reason to worship. We're not only to struggle maybe through the deep questions of faith and science and think about the different theological ways to interpret Genesis 1. If we just leave it there, we haven't moved on to the main and most important essential of why Genesis 1 exists. And it exists to introduce you again to the glorious God who created all things that deserves our worship. Going back to Psalm 104, this is how it concludes as it reflects on God as creator. Verse 31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice 
as I rejoice in the Lord. God brought the universe into being by the word of his power and sustains it the same way. And uh, we are called to worship this creator of the natural world. When you see a picture of just this far-off galaxies that are being picked up by something like the Hubble telescope, it's not only to be studied, but then to look at those glorious pictures and think, if these are so beautiful, if these are so glorious, if these are so mysterious, how much more is the depth and the glory and the beauty and the glory of God who created all these things? I also remember another pastor illustrating about like the micro parts of creation, screaming the glory of God when he talks about a part of creation called quarks, which are these uh, elementary particles that composite protons and neutrons, that there's something smaller than protons and neutrons in the world. That is very small. And one of the ways that I guess scientists understand quarks is that they're essentially made of these vibrating strings. All of creation is made by these vibrating strings called quartz. And one of these pastors I heard reflected on that and maybe a theological reality that we can layer on to that material reality, that it's almost as if God created in such a way that all of creation is like a giant stringed instrument, that when it's in tune, it's in tune for the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God, and all of creation testifies to that glory. All of creation is for him, and not only for God, but for his Son. Look at Colossians 1.16. For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and this is key, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is in Christ that all things have been created through him. And then it says, for him, for the glory of Jesus All the things we see in the Hubble, all the things we see in how our very material world is made up in quarks and other things like that, it's all for the glory of Jesus Christ, and in him all things hold together. In Genesis 1, you not only see creation, but you see gospel, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people look until Genesis 3 for the first, what they would say, foreshadowing, of the gospel when that happens when it talks about that somebody's going to come from the line of Eve and stomp on and crush the head of the serpent and he's going to bite the heel that that is pointing ahead to the gospel but I see even here Genesis 1 pointing ahead to the gospel of Jesus Christ with the simple phrase of let there be light let there be light as John 1 says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was, God, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has not been made, that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me end with this illustration. There's this, um, uh, we sometimes hang out with some friends that have this like really dark, like basement and guest room. It's it's a 
uh, guest room that uh, I don't think is probably according to code uh, because there's no like egress windows to crawl out of, but it's like one of the best places to like go to bed or take a nap because it's just pitch black in that thing. And when, even when you come out of that room because it's in the basement, there's like, like nothing. Like you can, you're stumbling around, you can't see anything. And then when you go upstairs uh, in the morning, when we you know, go and hang out with them and have some coffee, you open the door into the main floor, and the, the main part of their main floor faces east. And in the morning, it just like scorches your eyeballs with light. And you're just like kind of coming out of the darkness, and you're just like, you can't, you kind of stumble around, and you have to take a moment for your eyes uh, to adjust. And not only is that how we are supposed to view God in creation, but that's how we view the gospel. Jesus shines the light into the darkness. And so much of life is like stumbling around and it's like, what's my purpose? Why am I here? Am I good? Are we good? Am I good with God? And one of the things that the Christian message does when it comes along and says, as we're stumbling around in those things that sometimes feel like it doesn't have meaning or life or purpose, that we are reminded that in Christ there is light. And the darkness will never overcome it. When you are introduced to the Lord through Jesus Christ, you're reminded again that in this light that's shining, that you have meaning, you have purpose, and you are loved, brothers and sisters, by the very light from heaven who rescued you and redeemed you and will not give up on you ever. The God who sustains all things by the word of his power is very much still shining light into your life through the light of Christ and his death and resurrection.